0: It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course listen to the quiz at the quiz.fox. I'm Stuart Vonney. I'm Martha McCallum. I'm Jason Chaffetz, and this is the Fox News Rundown.
1: Wednesday, July 5th, 2023. And Lisa Brady. The way congressional maps are drawn or redrawn based on recent Supreme Court rulings could impact the balance of power in Washington.
0: Tracking these redistricting machinations is kind of challenging and, and kind of tedious, <laughs> particularly when, when you're trying to figure out what the law is and, and how it's being applied, but it is really important for both sides because the, the size of the majorities are just so small.
2: I'm Chris Foster. Alice Marie Johnson's been a free woman again for five years now. Her life sentence in federal prison cut short by then-President Trump.
3: I don't shy away that I did something wrong. What was wrong about my case is that the time didn't fit the crime. And
4: I'm Dr. Kevin Sabet. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown.
1: The road to the White House is longer than it's ever been, and as candidates try to chart a course through endless campaign cycles, the courts have also been busy making decisions that can impact election maps and the balance of power in Washington.
0: It involves not just redistricting laws, but really almost any law that somehow impacts federal elections.
1: Former Deputy Assistant Attorney General Tom Dupree, after the U.S. Supreme Court ruled against North Carolina Republicans, who argued only state legislatures can say, Federal election law, Dupree says the ruling clarified the role of courts. State courts, specifically state supreme courts, still have a role to play in overseeing election laws. That ruling last week in a case known as Moore versus Harper upheld a decision by the North Carolina Supreme Court, which struck down a congressional map as overly partisan. The U.S. Supreme Court also paved the way for new maps in Louisiana and Alabama in challenges based on race. The Alabama ruling siding with a lower court that found the Voting Rights Act was likely violated by a congressional map with only one majority black district out of seven. Yeah, so um,
0: section two of the Voting Rights Act has this, basically this test that has been developed through jurisprudence, it's called the, the Jingles Test.
1: Kyle Condick is managing editor for Sabato's Crystal Ball at the University of Virginia Center for Politics.
0: Um, and it basically suggests that if it's possible in a certain state to draw a district in which a, uh, you know, a minority group is essentially a majority and that they vote in a similar kind of way, and that they sort of need to be put together in order to be able to have the chance to elect a candidate of their choice, then those sorts of districts should be created. And so classically, what that test is applied to has basically been black voters in the South who kind of need to be put together in order to elect someone of their choice, because otherwise they'll get outvoted by white voters in the South who are generally Republican these days, black voters generally Democratic. And so what has happened in Alabama and what looks like it's probably going to happen in Louisiana, too, is that it's possible to draw an additional you know, majority black district in both of those states, which functionally would probably give the Democrats an extra seat in both of those states. And it's possible that this ruling will have ripple effects in other places, but Alabama and Louisiana are the most obvious right now. Functionally speaking, what that might mean is that instead of getting a single House seat out of Alabama and Louisiana, uh, Democrats might get two apiece in each state, which you know, when the House is only 222 to 213 Republican, Every change to a map matters greatly, given how closely contested the race for the majority is.
1: How is this different from gerrymandering? In other words, sort of manipulating a map in order to put voters together isn't necessarily gerrymandering. It depends on how it's being manipulated.
0: It is a form of gerrymandering. In fact, if you are talking about gerrymandering to certain people, you kind of want to be precise as to what you're talking about. There's so-called partisan gerrymandering and also racial gerrymandering. And you know, partiz- so-called partisan gerrymandering is, is not illegal based on the federal courts. And so th- this is why also sometimes states will be pretty blatant when they're saying, oh, yeah, we're, we're trying to draw as many Republican or Democratic districts as possible, because that's actually not illegal, at least in the eyes of the federal courts. If you say something like, I'm trying to pack as many black voters into as few of districts as possible, that is a problem, legally speaking. And so that's why there are these distinctions, and invariably... You know, racial gerrymandering can end up being partisan gerrymandering, particularly in a a place like the South where voting is so racially polarized. And I say, if this seems confusing, don't worry. It is confusing. I think it's confusing to um, to lawyers and the courts, too, which is why we have this sort of updated jurisprudence about this and what. People on the left were worried about was that this particular court, which is pretty conservative on, on many things, was going to basically throw out the Section 2 Voting Rights Act formula altogether or, or change it in such a way that it was very difficult for it to be applied. Um, they didn't do that, which is what was kind of surprising about it. And, and it does potentially you know, lead to uh, you know, a small number of extra seats for Democrats, be it in the 2024 cycle or maybe later on this decade.
1: The Supreme Court also made a decision on North Carolina redistricting, making it clear, essentially, that courts do have a say and can remain a check on what state legislatures do with maps. How are these maps drawn? Is it very state to state? Is it always the state legislature? And does that ruling benefit one political party more than the other?
0: Yeah. So there's a lot to unpack here. You know, as I mentioned, the federal courts, they don't intervene on partisan um, gerrymandering claims. And um, really, they, the federal courts never have, although there was some thought over the past couple of decades that the Supreme Court was potentially open to doing that, but they never figured out like a, a standard for doing it. And so we've had kind of an innovation in, in state courts kind of intervening on partisan gerrymandering. So uh, in North Carolina, um, the previously Democratic-controlled uh, state Supreme Court there intervened against a Republican congressional gerrymander and imposed their own map for 2022 that led to basically a, a pretty fair resolve. is you know seven seven Democratic Republican split in in a state North Carolina that is very competitive although a little bit Republican leaning what the Supreme Court said was that state courts can still do that um, there was this theory that is called the independent state legislature theory that some argued. Basically says that when it comes to federal elections, only state legislatures can can make rules for that, including district maps, and that state courts had no role in determining them. Well, the court, the Supreme Court, did not go that far. Although they did, you know, preserve federal courts' ability to intervene on these sorts of election disputes at the state level if merited. But state supreme courts can still intervene in gerrymandering if they want to. But what has happened in North Carolina is that. The state Supreme Court there um, slipped from Democratic to Republican in the last election. And so even though basically the sort of forces allied with the left and Democrats got a victory in the Morby Harper the U.S. Supreme Court case, the state court in North Carolina has already overruled itself, which will give Republicans an opportunity to kind of sort of re-gerrymander North Carolina and probably get an extra I'd say maybe three or even four seats out of that state. So, you know, Morby Harper basically says, hey, state courts can still play a role in these gerrymandering and and other matters if those state courts want to. However, that doesn't actually help Democrats in the context of 2024 in North Carolina.
1: What are the guidelines laid out by the Constitution on this? I mean, some states have one House representative. Others can have, you know, a dozen or more.
0: So, uh, you know, every state gets there's a formula every 10 years. Um, house seats are awarded based on population size. Generally speaking, the states of the Sun Belt have been adding house seats because they've just growing faster than in the Northeast and the Midwest, who have been losing seats. And you know, house seats also translate to electoral votes. So there are 538 electoral votes. Some states like you know Delaware, Vermont, or Wyoming, or the Dakotas, they just have a single member elected statewide because that's all their population uh, necessitates. Or states like California. California and Texas that have dozens of House members uh, apiece. You know, California is the biggest House delegation. Texas is second. Florida is third. Uh, New York is uh, is fourth, and, and down the line. And the states have different rules for doing the maps. You know, in a lot of states, it's just the you know, the state legislature draws the maps, and the governor can have veto power over that. Some states have like an independent or bipartisan commission. That's sort of a growing trend. Um, but you know, so long as the districts have equal population and they're not they're not subject to these racial you know gerrymandering complaints, you know, there's a lot of free reign um, in states where where one party has uh, has power to to draw the lines.
1: Do maps. Matter even more now than they used to, because analysis has really gotten to a granular level, right, with how many voters are in which counties um, or was that data always known, but it was a lot more labor intensive to get it. There are
0: some people who believe that basically new technology has made it easier to gerrymander. And I think that's probably true, at least on the margins. However, I think that, you know, gerrymandering is I mean, it's older than the United States as a country. So, you know, this is something that's always been with us. I think one thing that has made gerrymandering, I think, more effective now as opposed to maybe four or five decades ago is that. People's partisan affiliations and voting patterns are probably easier to predict than they used to be. Um, the power of incumbency is not as strong, and um, voters don't split their tickets as much. So, like, there are good examples from like the 1970s of states where you had one side trying to gerrymander in their favor, and like the maps just didn't work because you know there were strong incumbents or or people's partisan preferences changed or whatever. And that still happens to some degree, but the combination, I think, of the technology, which again is is a fair point that probably matters on the market margins, but also just that people's voting patterns, I think, are a little stickier and a little bit easier to predict now than maybe they used to be. And that probably makes the maps more important.
1: So to the extent that these rulings could impact, you know, maps in time to affect the 2024 elections, is it mainly House races that you think could be impacted the most or or others around the country?
0: Uh, well, you know, I mean, there, there are uh, um, there, there's going to be some action at the state legislative level too. Like, like in Wisconsin, for instance, you know that state supreme court flipped from Republican to Democratic, and you know the the maps there, particularly the state legislative maps, are, are Republican gerrymanders. And so, the new Democratic-controlled state supreme court may intervene there, which could have um, impacts at the congressional level, but also probably even more notably at the state legislative level there, where you know, in a 50-50 state, you know, Republicans have supermajority, I think, in at least one chamber in Wisconsin, which is not really reflective of what that state is. So there may be ripple effects, you know, below the congressional level, but if you're looking at this from the federal perspective, you're gonna see some, you know, at least a handful of congressional maps change. You know, North Carolina, Alabama, Louisiana are all pretty strong possibilities. There may be some other states. And as of now, it's kind of a it, it may be kind of a mixed bag in terms of which party benefits from redistricting. It's going to take months to figure out all the moving pieces here. And again, the magnitude of these decisions is amplified in these changes because when house majorities are so small really every seat matters. So tracking these redistricting machinations it's kind of challenging and, and kind of tedious, <laughs> particularly when when you're trying to figure out what the law is and, and how it's being applied. But it is really important for both sides because the size of the majorities are just so small.
1: One other quick thing for you on 2024. I know it's still early. Much of the focus is on the presidential race this far out. but any early takes on how the matchup looks right now for control of, of House and Senate?
0: I mean, look, I think the majority is up for grabs in both. I mean, the Republicans have a golden opportunity in the Senate given that they need to flip, you know, maximum two seats, you know, depending on how the vice presidency goes, maybe they only need one um, for the tiebreaker. And they've got, you know, Montana, West Virginia, and Ohio, all as, uh, you know, as red states really now at the presidential level, the target. And there's just been a growing correlation between the Senate and House, but, you know, Senate results and, and presidential results. So those are those are three really good targets for Republicans in the Senate. And, you know, the House is very closely decided. We've got these redistricting battles going on, but We should expect the race for the House to be uh, very competitive, too. Like, you know, it's like it's not out of the realm of possibility that you could have the presidency, the Senate and the House all flip in the same year, which would seem odd, particularly because, you know, you would have Republicans winning the presidency and the Senate and Democrats flipping the House despite losing the other two. But like things are tight enough in all three categories that that's not like a crazy thing to suggest. I mean, I wouldn't like predict that to happen, but it's competitive enough that it could.
1: Kyle Kondik, Managing Editor for Sabato's Crystal Ball at the University of Virginia Center for Politics. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And join me, Rachel Campos Duffy.
5: And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table to Duffy's at
4: foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. This is Dr. Kevin Stavett with your Fox News commentary
2: coming up. America's Crime Crisis. Hi, I'm Chris Foster. Alice Breed Johnson spent 21 years in prison. She was sentenced to life without parole in 1997 for cocaine trafficking in Memphis, Tennessee. She was a single mother of five children and says all she did was relay coded telephone messages for drug dealers. Kim Kardashian took up Johnson's cause, visited the White House on her behalf in 2018. And a week later, President Trump granted clemency and had her released.
3: I'm free to hug my family. Yes, I'm free to live life. I'm free to start over.
2: Alice Marie Johnson's an advocate now for prison and criminal justice reform.
3: Some people I know personally in the communities that they serve, I don't hear people telling me that they to defund the police.
2: He's founder and CEO of the TAG Foundation, taking action for good.
3: I think that, uh, especially Chris, in the black community, we definitely don't want to defund the police because we look at them as what their roles are, and that's to be a part of the community to help serve. And then you've got the police who live in communities too. I really think that is. I can't believe anyone will come up with something like that. I think we need to support the police and make sure that they've got the tools that they need to do their job and that they are focusing more. I believe in focusing more, especially on violent crime. Get Free the police up to do what they need to do. I truly believe, Chris, that people should be held accountable for their actions, but that it should also be fair and just. I don't shy away that I did something wrong. What was wrong about my case is that the time didn't fit the crime. It was extremely excessive.
2: Right. And they also you were accused of being, I don't know, higher up in a drug conspiracy organization than you say you actually were. So part of it was the sentence didn't fit what the crime you were actually convicted of. And you probably were overcharged. Right.
3: Oh, absolutely. The one who was really at the very top, he cooperated and, uh, you know, not to retry myself, he cooperated. Of course, he had a long criminal record, so he knew what he needed to do to get a lesser sentence. And they ended up getting the small sentence and I got the lion's share of the sentence when I was, in fact, a telephone mule. So I don't really consider myself as a victim. I consider myself as a victor because I did not allow that time to change who I am as a human being. Character is the only thing that you have when you go in prison that you can take with you. So I didn't allow that to break me, and I really worked to influence prison culture for good. Yeah,
2: You've been out for five years now. When you think back, does it feel like it was life before prison and then life after prison with a different life in between, or is it all just life?
3: It's all just life for me. Going into prison, the person who I am, I never really was ever criminally minded in my life. I just had something happen that was not a good situation. I made a very poor decision during a time of uh, high stress in my life. Looking back on it, I would never make a decision like that. I'm going to say being in my being not under that kind of pressure that I was on, but I still don't excuse my actions. Before prison, I am that same person. And when I went into prison, my life continued. I made a decision that I'm not going to give in and conform to how prison is supposed to be a conform to their culture. But I'm going to try to make a difference for good there. I did the same thing before I went to prison. I did the same thing when I got to prison. And coming out of prison, I still look at life in terms of... Making a difference in the lives of others.
2: Yeah, and even in uh, you became was it? A, I knew you worked in hospice. Did you become a nurse or just some sort of hospice? No, uh- no I
3: became uh, in order to be a hospice volunteer. They don't have nursing programs in prison, mm-hmm. but when I saw that women were in hospice and I'm, I've been given a life sentence and told that I'm going to die in prison, and many of them were not getting receiving visitors, and so they did have hospice training, which is a very intense training, and I signed up to do it, and that was really one of the most rewarding experiences of my life, to be there with someone who has no family, and they didn't know me initially uh, because some of the women had been transported from other prisons, but to be there to give them some joy and peace and just to read to them, to sing to them, to hold their hands where they did not have to die alone.
2: A lot of people in your situation might have spent, once they're out, might have spent the rest of their lives just wanting, I don't want anything to do with the criminal justice system. I just want to move on. But you're out there trying to help other people get out of prison with your TAG foundation. Tell us about that. It stands for Taking Action for Good. How do you determine, first of all, what sentences are unfair? What cases do you take on?
3: Well, I receive a lot of cases, especially when I received my freedom under President Trump. Even the women who I left behind, they were crying the day that I left prison, asking me, please don't forget about us, Miss Alice. There was no way that I could just walk out of prison or, let's say, run out across the street. <laughs> <laughs> but there's no way that I could just leave them knowing that I was had this platform. Even if I didn't have this platform, I would have been doing everything that I could to advocate for them. They became my family. People are human And I started this foundation as a way to humanize the need for criminal justice reform, to put their faces out there, to put their stories out there. So I've really got two things that I'm really focused on right now, and that's showing the people who have gotten out of prison, who have made good use of their second chances. Because honestly, all you see in the news is when someone messes up, they want to focus on that and say, that's why we have violent crime. And when you get people who are doing outstanding, outstanding, absolutely outstanding in their communities now. And I could name so many people, people who I helped gain their freedom and people who got, who received their freedom under the First Step Act and some who just finished their, many who just finished their sentence. Why are we not hearing anything about that? So that's my mission is to not only show the people who have made good really to humanize them. Because when you hear people saying bad things and you just, it's like with the police. If one police do something, then it becomes this whole defund the police or they focus on the bad cops and not the good ones. So for me, it was my story that I believe changed America's opinion of what a prisoner would look like I was just like them, had been a normal contributing citizen, and then I'm caught up in something, I made a mistake, I paid more than what was warranted, and then I come out and they see me, so it's important that they see other people too. And also, I want to show people who are in prison who deserve a second chance, who rehabilitated. The message that we give out when we demonize people who are back in society and doing great, we don't give them a chance. When people demonize those who are out here doing good because of the actions of a few, because we are not the ones responsible for the uptick in violence. You know, I just want to say it's so important for people to see them, For me to help them get their voices out and to continue to get my voice out and to really show the public these are people just like you. They're human beings.
2: Well, speaking of those few, barrel form is a controversial thing. I want to see if you have any thoughts on it. The idea... Behind bail reform is to not keep people locked up or force them to take a plea deal just because they can't afford bail. But then you get, of course, the stories of the people doing violent crimes who would have been locked up without bail reform. It's a tricky thing to balance.
3: It is a tricky thing to balance because, honestly, I think bail reform to some has become a slippery thing. I believe people should be held accountable for their actions. If you've got someone out there, Chris, that's committed a violent crime, those are not the people that bail reform was meant for. I was in jail with women before I went to the federal prison after my uh, trial. And they were in there for the craziest things, couldn't get home to their kids. They couldn't make a $200 bond. They ended up having their children taken away from them because they couldn't make bond. They ended up having them in foster care. With anything, there can be extremes and abuse. The bail reform had an intention of doing good, and it still does. However, there are some out there who are just letting people go and not holding them accountable. And that's where the problem in itself lies in. bail form in itself is not the problem. It's how it is being applied in some situations that is the problem.
2: You're also trying to help kids stay out of prison. I was reading about uh, tell me about Cafe Momentum. First of all, I think it's a cool program.
3: Oh, yeah, Cathay Momentum is very dear to my heart. I, I work with those youth. We've been at the Super Bowl with food trucks, bringing attention to juvenile justice impacted juveniles. And so one of the things I told the women, and they saw, i fulfilled that promise immediately i told them not only am i going to advocate for you but i'm going to advocate for your kids because many of the children have parents who've been in who are incarcerated and they end up getting on the wrong path of foster care so i saw cafe momentum what they were doing with the kids that had been justice impacted not only were they helping the um ones who have been impacted with learning culinary skills, they make sure they have an education, they view them with a holistic approach. And so I really wish we had more things that would address uh, juvenile justice, because they are our future. And we can stop them, we can change their lives and let them know that what you did don't define who you are now, that there's a pathway to turning your life around. And so that really inspired me, that juvenile detention center I went to when I first got out. That was the first place I visited. And one of the young women there, I impacted her life to the point she became a Cafe Momentum uh, ambassador, one of their ambassadors. She graduated valedictorian. And she was on a, you know, when you see the fruit of your labor, it made me. Cafe Momentum is is one organization that I fully support for the work that they're doing. Uh,
2: you became a grandmother and a, and a great-grandmother uh, in prison. Yes. You, you, you catching up? Have you, you had uh, your fill of regular grandma time?
3: Oh, I love being around my grandchildren. You know, I had twin grandchildren, a grandson and a granddaughter. So I've been with them since they were born. They were three months old when I came out. So when I say born, they were very small. So they know me as grandma. But now my relationship with my grandchildren has totally bloomed. I never stayed disconnected from them, though, in prison. I would make them craft things. And I didn't know how to crochet when I went to prison, but I learned how to make crafts. I wrote them letters so they would have something to hang on to. And my oldest grandson, who was 18 months old when I went to prison, he showed me everything that I had ever sent him when I went to prison. He had kept it. So it was, it's so important to stay in touch with your family.
2: Alice B. Johnson, it was really a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. I, founder of the TAG Foundation, among all her other good work. Alice, thanks. Thank you, Chris, for having me on.
5: In other news...
1: I'm Gianna Gelosi. The top dog at the National Hot Dog and Sausage Council has spoken on the do's and don'ts of topping trends, saying slattering your hot dog in ketchup is apparently a foodie faux pas for people 18 and up. Ruling the sweetness is not the ideal match for a hot dog and that the condiment is for kids only. The red spread has been ferociously blackballed by the council for over a decade. The council says mustard, onions, and sauerkraut are preferable toppings... But the VP of marketing for Sabret begs to differ, telling the New York Post there's no shame in the ketchup game and urges dog downers to add whatever floats their boat. A May 2021 survey by the NHDSC found 61 percent of Americans enjoy smothering their hot dogs with a few healthy squeezes of ketchup, outperforming relish chili and cheese in the poll. It closely trailed mustard, which reigns supreme as the countrywide favorite. For the Fox News Rundown, I'm Gianna Pelosi.
2: it's Will Cain, co-host of Fox and Friends
0: Weekend. Join me as I share my thoughts on a wide range of topics from sports and pop culture to politics and business.
5: The Will Cain Podcast. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com.
4: It's time for your Fox News
5: commentary.
1: Dr. Kevin Sabet.
4: What's on your mind? It's college. Everyone experiments a little. This often-repeated trope could soon have real-world consequences for today's student-athletes. The NCAA Committee on Competitive Safeguards and Medical Aspects of Sports recently signaled its support for the college athletics governing body to remove marijuana from the NCAA's list of banned substances and instead focus on testing only on performance-enhancing drugs. That's right. The governing body for college athletics might soon be telling their students, most of whom physiologically still have developing brains, that it's okay to do drugs, particularly for our young people. And even considering this risky, if not outright dangerous move, the NCAA is choosing to ignore the advice of every major medical association and surgeon general that today's THC-laced drugs are damaging to the brain. Marijuana isn't the drug it was a generation ago. It's an industrialized, highly potent product that is anything but recreational. Studies over the last number of years, including one released last month, Link THC use to significant physical and psychological impacts. This is particularly true when taken in the higher doses often found in today's concentrates, edibles, and vaping products. Cannabis use disorder, although also known as addiction to marijuana, has become increasingly more prevalent among college-age Americans. For all the talk about how pot is not addictive in 2021, 4.8 million individuals between the ages of 18 and 25 in that year had a marijuana use disorder, accounting for 41% of past-year users in that age group. Moreover, full legalization is also associated, according to studies, with a 25% increase in marijuana use disorder or addiction in youth. Now, the risks aren't just for users. More young people are driving under the influence of marijuana, too. In 2021, almost 11 million people admitted to driving under the influence of marijuana, including almost one and a half million who were between the ages of 16 and 20. There are 2.4 times more minors on the road under the influence of marijuana than the influence of alcohol. It's worth noting that the World Anti-Doping Agency continues to prohibit the in-competition use of cannabinoids, a position they most recently upheld in September 2022. There are three criteria for prohibiting a substance is that, number one, it has the potential to enhance performance. Number two, it threatens the health of the user. And number three, it violates the spirit of sport. The NCAA's position would be at odds with the policy in place for the Olympics and international competitions, potentially placing American athletes at a competitive disadvantage. The NCAA has long claimed it looks out for the best interests of the sports governance from the perspective of the athlete. Opening the door to today's high-potency THC products and increasing drug use won't bring these young people success on the field or in the classroom. Nobody wins with drugs in the game. Let's hope NCAA reconsiders its position and looks out for the best interests of the young people who are its present and its future. I'm Dr. Kevin Sabet, CEO of the nonprofit Smart Approaches to Marijuana and the Foundation for Drug Policy Solutions. I was a former drug advisor to the Presidents Obama, Bush, and Clinton. (laughs)